The rest of us can turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 14, the passage we read, read earlier. Some of you will remember that last time I was preaching, I preached from Acts chapter 4, the aftermath of Peter healing a lame man and preaching the gospel, and then he was uh, arrested by uh, the religious leaders, and they had to testify before them, and we were considering something of the gospel from what Peter was uh, saying on that occasion. Uh, But I thought it would be good for us to consider what is almost a, a parallel passage in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 14, and consider the aftermath of another healing of another lame man. And I think, as we'll perhaps see later on, Luke is quite deliberate in recounting both of these uh, stories. But our focus this morning is going to be on what we can learn from the example of Paul and Barnabas as they were witnesses to the people there at this town of Lystra. And so if you want a title for the message this morning, it's this, Faithful Witnesses in a Foolish and Fickle World. Faithful Witnesses in a Foolish and Fickle World. I'm sure we've all heard the phrase before, never work with children or animals. Both are rather difficult customers, Uh, and I'm sure all of us have had some experience of that. But it comes to the nature of some forms of work that you have to work with children and animals. Consider, for example, the portrait photographer who gets to photograph all kinds of people, but that has to include children and often their Pets, and that can't be an easy one because, of course, children are running around and pets don't uh, pose for the camera. Awkward customers. But it's the nature of the job. You have to work with them. Well, such it is when it comes to witnessing of the gospel. There are two kinds of people that you should never have to witness to. Foolish people and fickle people. They are really awkward customers. But dear friends... It's the nature of the job of Christians, as we are, to be faithful witnesses to foolish and fickle people. And unfortunately, there are none who aren't. It's the nature of this labor. And so how are we to do this? How are we to be faithful witnesses in a world that is so foolish and so fickle? Well, I think we learn much from this passage here in Acts chapter 14. And the first thing is this. A foolish people need the truth, and so we must proclaim the truth to a foolish people. That's what they need. That's what we see here. Paul and Barnabas have been going from town to town preaching the gospel, and just recently they have faced some quite severe persecution. Uh, We read Uh, that uh, in the city where they were, verse 4 of chapter 14, the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles, and then an attempt was made by the Gentiles and the Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and stone them. In other words, a murder attempt was made on their lives. 
but it was foiled, and in God's grace they were able to escape, and off they fled to Lystra and Derby. And so they enter another town, this town of Lystra, and as they have done so before, they preach the gospel. And there Paul is, perhaps on this particular occasion, preaching his heart out in the town square of Lystra. It seems no one is really giving him much attention. No one is uh, giving heed to this strange man who's proclaiming a strange message. But there is one man who's listening, and that's a lame man who is sitting there. A lame man we read from birth. He's never walked. He's a cripple. And day by day, no doubt, he sat there in that town square. We've never seen this man before, and, well, he's got nothing better to do, so he might as well listen to this message. And it strikes his heart. And we read that Paul sees, uh, by God's intervention, he sees that this man has faith to be made well. And so Paul speaks in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And an incredible miracle occurs. This cripple, this lame man, much like Peter, as we read in um, Acts chapter 3, this man stands up. We read he springs up, he begins to walk, he begins to leap. Well, from that point on, things begin to escalate quickly. The town knew this man very well. They knew he was the lame man who always sat there uh, begging. Now there he is, uh, walking. And so before long, they're singing the praises of Paul and Barnabas in a very different response to the place they'd just been recently, a murder attempt on their lives, these people want to worship them. They think these two men are so amazing. A very different response, but in many ways an equally foolish one. It only proved that they had misunderstood what had happened. And there were three things that they'd misunderstood. Indeed, three things that I think are very much the same today and that instruct us in how we are to proclaim the truth to a foolish people. The first thing is that they'd misunderstood the power that was at work, which was the living God. The power at work was the living God, not their own gods, because that's what they understood. You see, verse 3, we read of The Lord bearing witness to the word of his grace. God has been granting signs and wonders to be done by the hand of the apostles to prove that the word that was being preached really was the word of God. The living God thus had done this amazing miracle. But what do we read in verse 11? Well, we read of them saying, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They think the miracle has been done by the power of their own gods. Perhaps it would be helpful for us to understand a little of the context. Fifty years before Paul and Barnabas had gone to this town, a Roman poet called Ovid had written a certain story, a story of two gods, funnily enough, called Zeus and Hermes. And these two gods had come to earth and disguised themselves as men. And they had gone from home to home seeking a place to stay. All the homes turned them away. Then at last, these two gods came to the home of an elderly couple, and they were welcomed in. And so they they were shown to be gods, and they made their house a temple, and they poured judgment on all the the homes that hadn't received them, and uh, this couple was honored. 
Well, perhaps this was in the minds of the people. They no doubt would have known about that story. And as they see these two men who do this miracle, they think, Ah, we are the ones. We get to welcome the gods into our city. And thus we will be blessed. But of course, what were they doing? They were just sticking their pagan framework on top of a miracle that the living God had done. They were interpreting this miracle by their mistaken theology. They thought they had understanding, but truly they were blind, they were foolish. Well, does this not occur today? The same sin blinds. We attribute what God has done and is doing to another source. How do we see this today? Well, perhaps not in exactly the same way. It's important for us to realize that this was the apostolic age. There were uh, particularly incredible, amazing things that were happening at that time. There are not many lame people who are leaping up among our congregation uh, this morning. God still does miracles, of course. But it was a particular time uh, as God gave witness to uh, his word. But the principle we have here very much is for us today. The common principle of confusing the evidence of God's power for another. Think, for example, of creation. We read, don't we, in the scripture that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. The beauty of the world we see around us. I've just recently been on holiday in Wales and beautiful scenery and it just cries out, it screams, the living God. There is a God who has made all these things. Many people in our age and in our society have come up with their own gods. Matter is God. The world and the universe has made itself. So we don't need the living God anymore. And this same framework is used to explain the Bible. Oh, the Bible, it's nothing special. It's just a book like any other book. Even though we know, don't we as believers, it is an extraordinary book. It contains the words of eternal life. What then of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? We point to that and say, Christ rose from the dead. There is proof that there is a living God. Ah, no, miracles don't happen. Oh, what then of providence? Oh, no, we don't talk of providence. We talk of coincidence. We point to somebody who's been converted. Oh, no, that's just a a change of mind. Influences made uh, upon the mind. Perhaps we point to times where God has moved in mighty ways. Revival, evidence of God's power at work. Oh, just a social phenomenon. Evidence. There's no lack of it for the living God. His power at work in our world. His power at work in lives. But it can all be explained away. A different way of understanding. Though the evidence is great, the people will not listen. They come up with their own gods. What then are we to witness of as God's people? How are we to witness to such a foolish people? Well, we need to proclaim the truth that there is a living God. That's it, isn't it? And that's what Paul and Barnabas do is, as they're saying, oh, the gods have come to us. What is it that Paul and Barnabas do? They point them to the living God. Verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, these false gods, to a living God. The living God. God, there is a God who rules 
this universe. And so we are to faithfully proclaim that true framework because truly there is no understanding our world, there is no understanding ourselves until we know that there is a God. And that God is the God of the Bible, the almighty God, the sovereignly powerful God, the God who's able to make cripples walk, the God who is able to save souls. And indeed then, as we witness of this truth of a living God, should that truth not influence the way we witness? What we witness should affect how we witness. And so if we're proclaiming a living God, ought we not to witness of him in faith? That we really believe that we have a living God. Because we proclaim this God to the world around us and nobody listens. Nobody seems to pay any attention. We can despair, can't we? How can such foolish and blind people ever be saved? But if we believe in a living God, he can do it. He can do it. If he can raise cripples, he can open blind spiritual eyes. Such he can do. Well, let us have faith then as we reclaim the power that is at work in our world. The living God. Something else they were confused about was this. The person to worship who is the creator God. The person to worship is the creator God. You see, the people of Lystra thought that the gods had become men. Interestingly, they believe in a kind of incarnation. The gods have come down to earth. Well, what an irony. What were Paul and Barnabas there to teach them about? They were there to preach to them about an incarnation. God has become man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they believed that actually Paul and Barnabas themselves were that incarnation. And not only, as we've just uh, uh, spoken, they've not only misunderstood God, but they've misunderstood men. They believed that these men were gods. And Paul and Barnabas realized that the gravity of such a, a, a claim. And what do they do? Verse 14, we read that they tear their garments. They rush out in the crowd crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We're no different from you, they say. We're just here to bring you good news. You're confused about who to worship. It's not us. It's God, the creator God. And that's what they go on to say, isn't it? They say that you're to turn to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. They urge them not to worship them as men, but to worship God. And this, of course, is natural to sinful hearts. Don't we read of this in Romans chapter 1 of the evidence of a heart that is turned away from God. Instead of worshipping God, we worship the creature. Romans 1 verse 25. We read of those who have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And this is exactly what uh, the people of Lystra had done. They're mistaking the truth for error, and thus idolatry follows. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If we don't know who God is, then we'll make up who that God is. And what do we have to make up a God? Well, we only have the creation around us and ourselves. And so we create a God of our own likeness. And such occurs then still today. How many take what is creation and treat it as the creator foolishly worshipping ourselves, foolishly worshipping 
man. You see, God has given to us creation as a window to see through that we might see the creator God. The problem is, too often, we're looking at our own reflection. You know, that you can look, your, our eyes can focus, can't they, in different places. You look at a window, you can sort of focus on what's through the window, or you can focus on what's bouncing back from the window. And too often we're looking at our own reflection and we worship that rather than looking through the window and seeing creation leads us to worship the Creator. And how silly then our age is, even though they don't think of themselves as silly. We're not so foolish to, to make up these, these gods like Zeus and Hermes. And yet, of course, what do we do? Well, we treat men and women, though we don't call them gods, we treat celebrities, we treat well-known personalities, influencers, even politicians at times, as gods, mini-gods, people to worship. We think that they're our, our savior and helper. They're going to be the one who's going to bless us. And yet, of course, it's idolatry. Now, we don't call it idolatry, we don't call it worship, and we don't call them gods, but that's what it is. So then, what are we to do as believers? How are we to witness in such a foolish age? Well, we're to witness of the Creator God, the one truly who has made us and who alone deserves our worship. And of course, who is that ultimately? Is it not the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the Creator, and He is worthy of worship. Indeed, the only man who is worthy of worship because He is the God-man. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul and Barnabas don't actually name Jesus at all in what they say, what we read here. I think it's interesting that they certainly don't begin there. Good reason for that, because they know that these are Gentiles that they're speaking to. These weren't people who are familiar with the Jewish promises. They weren't waiting for the Messiah. And so they begin with creation. They begin with speaking about God as creator. I think there's something we can learn from that. Increasingly important as we live in a biblically illiterate age. The importance of employing the truths of creation and providence as we witness to those who know very little. God the creator, he alone is to be worshipped. But I suggest to you that Paul and Barnabas are on their way to get to Jesus. We always must. And the reason that I suggest that to you is because Paul has a very similar message for the people at the Areopagus. We read of it in Acts chapter 17. And he begins in a very same way as he's preaching to Gentiles. He begins with talking about the creator God who's made them, who's made all things, who's worthy of worship, who desires for them to seek after him. In Acts uh, chapter 17, um, he, he goes uh, through this message, but then he gets to the point where he preaches uh, about Christ. He, he speaks of the one uh, who, who is coming to judge the world in Acts 17, verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Gets to the resurrection. So I think what Paul is and Barnabas, what they want to do here in Acts 14 is they're on their way to get to speak about Jesus, but they can't get there because the crowd are, are, are clamoring uh, to uh, sacrifice to them and, and thronging around them. But that's what we must do. We must ultimately get to Christ as we witness of the Creator God. He is the one who has made all things, and he is the one who has even entered this creation so that we uh, might know this Creator God for ourselves. Doesn't this again, though, inform us on how we are to witness of God? 
If we believe in a creator God, should we not be humble as we witness of him? This was not an average response, was it? Even in the book of Acts, this was not an average response to the apostles' ministry. And what a temptation for Paul and Barnabas. Hardly anyone ever listens to them. All of a sudden, they've got a great hearing. And all the people want to praise them and worship them. Oh, well, you know, I have, you know, I mean, it is quite a good message. And I've, I've been fairly good at preaching it, haven't I? And it doesn't really matter if I get a little bit of, little bit of a boost through a crowd praising me. No, they don't do that. They tear their garments, a sign of mourning and grief. Don't do it. Stop. They say, you must not do that. We are like men with you. The danger is for us, isn't it, of even as we witness of the gospel, we want to be perceived well. We forget and must always remember that we proclaim the creator God who alone must receive all the glory. He alone is to be worshipped, and we must speak of him as such. We are just the channel. We are just the instrument to point people to Jesus Christ, that God may have all the glory. And so then, the person to worship is the creator God. Also then, the purpose of the wonder is the Savior God. The purpose of the wonder is the Savior God. This also was something that the people were confused about. They've gone mad over a man being healed. But we read in verse 18 that as Paul and Barnabas are trying to stop them from sacrificing to them, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. They're amazed at the miracle they've done, but they're not listening to the message that they've brought. The emphasis, you see, is all wrong. As we read earlier in verse 3, God had given these miracles to bear witness to the word of his grace. The purpose of the miracle was to point them to the Savior. But they're also fascinated by the miracle. They haven't even heard about the Savior yet. They're amazed at the miracle, not at the message. Oh, how tragic that is. And that's why then Paul and Barnabas have to preach to them about the Savior God, God's kindness to them. He says in verse 16, In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He says, See the kindness of God to you. This is a God who wants you to know him. This is a God who's been so kind uh, toward you. See the love of God. And surely he's driving to the point that the ultimate manifestation of the love of God is found in Jesus Christ. But they will not listen. Wasn't this even the problem that Christ had himself? You remember when he fed the 5,000 and there they were thronging about him. But he knew why they were there. They were there for the miracle he'd done. They weren't there for the message. They weren't there for him. There he was, the Son of God. But they were more interested in seeing him break loaves and feed them. And such then the problem uh, exists today still. So many who live for a special, mystical experience. And there are many churches who take advantage of that because there's a a real hunger and thirst for it. We want some kind of experience. We want something kind of remarkable. And, of course, all those remarkable things that are claimed to happen are so often fake. 
God does do amazing things. But it's only to point us to the message. The Savior God. God wants us to experience something that is far deeper than just an emotive experience. But that of knowing Jesus as Savior. So many, they want bits of Christianity. They don't want Christ. There's a story of a lady who went round to a certain person's house uh, for, for a time together and uh, they were chatting and there was a coffee table there and there was a bowl of nuts on, on the table. And this lady began to just help herself to the nuts that were on the table. And after a little while she said, oh, I hope you don't mind, I'm just helping myself here. He said, oh no, I don't mind at all. He said, I only like the chocolate. I don't like the nuts inside. Well, I'm not so sure she was felt quite so well uh, after that. There are some who are like that. Uh, they like the chocolate, but they don't like the substance that's inside that chocolate, the nut that's in the middle. Such it is with Christianity. They want all the trappings, but they don't want Christ, as it were, the nut that's in the center of it all. He's the one who gives us all that we need. Everything else doesn't last. So what then are, to we, wit- are we to witness of? Uh, people who are, who are so foolish uh, on this point. Uh, they don't understand the purpose of uh, the things that God does. Well, we're to preach Christ as Savior. And even though people will leave us disappointed and disgusted, we are to ever preach him. Never failing to preach Christ, to speak of him. And this, again, uh, teaches us, doesn't it, on how we're to witness. Are we not to witness sincerely, with sincerity? Look at verse 14. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? There's an earnestness in their message. Such it ought to be for us if we're preaching a Savior God who's come into this world to redeem sinners like us. Then we must preach him as those who know him. Who know him. Indeed, I suggest to you that's probably the most effective thing at all in any evangelism of any kind. It's not even so much what you say, but it's how you say it. Do you speak of Christ as one who knows him as Savior and Lord in your life? That will have more effect than anything else. The most effective evangelist is one who speaks, is one who knows the one he speaks of. And so, dear believer, here this morning, keep proclaiming the truth. Keep proclaiming the truth. We live in a foolish world. If you're here tonight and uh, this morning and you're someone who does actually preach, well, take this to heart. Always preach the truth and always preach Christ, the living God, the creator God, the savior God. This is for each and every one of us. Remember the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ? Go and make disciples of all nations. That's not just for one or two of us. That's for each and every one of us. How are we to make disciples? We are to preach the truth, witnessing of Christ. And each and every person needs the same truth. And that's, I think, why Luke has put this story here. The the account of Peter healing the lame man was particularly for the Jews. Paul healing this lame man was particularly 
for the Gentiles as the gospel spreads. Luke wants us to see that it's the same almighty God that saves Jew and Gentile. Every single person needs this same living creator, savior, God. Well, maybe you're here this morning and you yourself are confused. Maybe you yourself have absorbed various foolish ideas of our age. Maybe you're confused as to creation. Is there a God at all? Well, I say to you this morning, there is a God who lives. He is in heaven. And indeed, his presence is even here this morning. He sees you. He knows all about you. And indeed, he is the creator God. He has made all things. And he is worthy of your time. And he is worthy of your affection. He alone is to be worshipped. And maybe you're also confused as to what God offers What are you looking for from God? I don't know why you're here in church this morning. What are you looking for? If you're not looking for Christ, then you're not really understanding what Christianity is all about. God reveals himself as a savior God, and that alone in Jesus. Everything points to him. And so do you know him? Do you desire him? Proclaim the truth to a foolish people, but also... And more briefly, persevere through trials with a fickle people. Persevere through trials with a fickle people. Foolishness is linked to fickleness. Because if what we believe is empty, then we will just fill it with whatever we like. And we see, don't we, in verse 19, that they, they decide that actually uh, they think very differently of Paul and Barnabas. Jews, we read, come from Antioch and Iconium, where Paul and Barnabas previously had been and had been persecuted. And they come and persuade the crowds, we read. And they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. From the status of gods to being worthy of death. And how, how, how foolish this is, because think about it for a moment. If Paul really is a god, then how can they kill him? That doesn't really work, does it? And if they can kill Paul, then wait a moment. By what power through Paul was the layman healed? They've not thought it through, have they? But here they are, fickle-minded, trying to kill the very man they were trying to worship just some days before. They're not thinking straight. They're people who are just living in the moment, delirious on excitement, and then filled with bitter hatred. And such it was, was it not, with the Lord Jesus himself. You remember the crowds who sang his praises as he came into Jerusalem. Hosanna! Then, just some days later, a week later, crucify him. Crucify him. Fickle-minded. And such it is, is it not, the same today? Nothing's changed. Whatever is the current fashion, thought, or philosophy, or science, we just go with it. Of course, our media has great influence, doesn't it, today? And many people get swept along by this, swept along by that. And we see, don't we, with the church, people come in through the doors. They're so enthusiastic. Wow, this is the greatest church ever. You're the best people ever. I'm going to make this my home forever. And a few weeks down the road, off they go. Never see or hear of them again. And even worse, perhaps, They turn against us. 
They're like a leaf fluttering in the wind, a butterfly flitting here and flitting there. They're not sure what's going to satisfy them. They're easily swayed. Well, by God's grace, we're thankful that we, I trust none of us have experienced quite what Paul experienced of being stoned. I remember I was nearly punched in Leicester Square once by a drunk man, but uh, never, never experienced any stoning before. But we do face the same fickleness, and there are difficulties that come by it, not least discouragement. What's the answer? We're to persevere. Persevere through trials with a fickle people. Persevere in believing, firstly. You must persevere in believing. Look at Paul and Barnabas. Despite this, this persecution, we read that they, they preached, uh, continue preaching the gospel. And what do we read of Paul's words to the disciples to encourage them? In verse 22, he says this, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You see, Paul hasn't changed his mind about anything. He still believes in the kingdom of God and he still believes uh, in the coming of Christ. The crowd had changed their mind, but Paul and Barnabas hadn't changed their minds. On they went with their ministry. And they were willing even to put their lives on the line for it. Well, it shows, doesn't it, the worthlessness of pursuing public opinion. We're perhaps moving out of the age of Christian influence. The tide is turning against us. Not only are we losing respect, but people despise Christianity. Friends, that shouldn't change what we believe. It doesn't matter the season in which we are in. The truths of the Bible are always the same. We have confidence in the unchanging gospel. Jesus is the same, do we not read? Yesterday, today, and forever. And so we live then, not by the majority. We live by the message. This indeed itself is a wonderful tool as we witness. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar, those three men who were going to be thrown in the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And no matter that he, he threatened them with the fiery furnace, they stood firm and would not budge. And that shook Nebuchadnezzar to his very core. Here he is, the most powerful man of earth, and he can't instill any fear into them. These men know what they believe, and they're sticking to it. Brethren, let us do the same. Trust me, it will shake the foundations of those who do not know the living God. Let's hold fast then to these truths. A worldview indeed that doesn't budge when attacked. It shames the flimsy ideas of our world. Maybe you feel, even this morning, maybe there's someone here, you feel you're being buffeted about here and there. Well, here's my encouragement for you. Stand firm. And be sure there will be people, maybe you don't even know about, who are secretly watching you. And as you stand firm in trials, they are marveling at the faith and perseverance that God is giving to you. Well, we're thankful, aren't we? We've been remembering over this weekend our dear sister Bernice. Ninety years of being kept faithful to the Lord, faithful in, uh, in believing. And uh, we give thanks for that. May we each be helped to that end. Faithful in all the years of our lives, believing the truth. So persevere in believing, but also persevere in witnessing. This is amazing, isn't it? Paul picks himself up, having been stoned. He rises up, the disciples gather about him, and on they move to Derby. But what do we read in verse 21? When they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned, where? To Lystra. 
They returned to the very same town that Paul had been stoned in. You would have thought that he would have suffered trauma after what he went through uh, preaching there and being stoned. No, they go back. Great perseverance and bravery. Now they know that they can't be as open as they were before. We read that they went there to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. But here's the thing. They knew what the city needed. They needed the ongoing preaching of the gospel. And so they went back to ensure that happened. Now is that not amazing? Here are men who sought to kill them, and yet they go back with such love for them that they persevere such that there's a group of faithful believers there so that there may be another opportunity for those same people to be saved. How astonishing. What, what, what love for what fickle people. They won't give up easily. And that's the answer, isn't it, to a people whose love is shallow and shifting. The answer is to show unconditional love. Carry on loving a people who seem unlovable. They may show no love to you, but you go on loving them. We persevere in it and persist then in sharing the truth. We read, don't we, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, Paul says this, the love of Christ compels us. That should be the driving force as we seek to reach out with the gospel. Love for the lost. Do you love those who've rejected your invitations to come to church? Do you love those who've disappointed you? Do you love those who've turned away? Do you love them enough to be faithful witnesses still to them? God, help us then to proclaim the truth. The living God, the creator God, the savior God. But to do so with faith, with humility, with sincerity. And let us also persevere in trials. Yet ever remembering this, and I close with this. Christ has persevered with us. Christ has continued with us. We were once foolish and fickle. We've, we were in that category, and to a large degree, we still are. But Christ perseveres with us, and he still loves us even when we're faithless to him. May God then grant us the same hearts filled with his overflowing love, that we may reach out to those who need it. And oh, if there are any still in that foolish, fickle state here this morning, may those same truths empowered by the Spirit, deliver you to knowledge and solid faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's close by singing number 618, facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, and he that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know you, that is the Lord, renew before your throne, solemn pledge we owe you to go and make you known. Verse 